If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Hi, this is Jen Rubin, and this is Jen Rubin's Green Room. As we sit here on Tuesday, we do not yet know the results of the New York Third. That is the seat that George Santos once held. And they're filling that seat in a special election, and it's important for several reasons. First of all, every seat for Democrats is one seat closer to winning back the majority. Secondly, Republicans are still trying to impeach Secretary Mayorkas, and again, every vote counts. And third of all, I think it's an indication that once again, when voters get to the polls, the results are often quite different than when pollsters ask them. So we'll see how that turns out. The next big piece of news, of course, is in the Senate, they overwhelmingly passed the aid for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. This was without the border measure because, of course, Republicans, after insisting they had to have a border security measure, voted against it and insisted they had to vote on something without the border security. So they voted on it. And what do you think Speaker Johnson had to say? Of course, we're demanding that we get a border security measure. These people were the same ones who, yes, were saying that the border security measure was a bad idea and they wanted to save the issue for Donald Trump for next year when they presume he'll be back in the White House. Wrongly, I hope. So this is a joke. Um, Worst, it is just a sign of how cynical, how irresponsible the Republicans are. They would rather see America harmed than lose their chance at keeping their seats and electing their cult leader. And it has been that way from day one since he rode down that elevator and it continues to this very day. Now, President Biden also came out today to announce um, his support, obviously, for the Ukraine security bill. He urged the House to act. And what's more, he read the riot act to Donald Trump, which I hope he does every day between now and the election. He called his invitation to Putin to invade NATO dumb. He called it un-American. And you know what else it is? It's treasonous. Because remember, the NATO treaty, Article 5, says an attack on one is an attack on all. So in inviting Putin to attack our NATO allies, yes, Donald Trump is inviting an attack on the United States. And that's how depraved he is. Forget about the world order. Forget about European security. Forget about our alliances. He's encouraging a dictator to attack us because NATO is one. And we should never forget 
that he would sell this country and he has sold this country down the drain at the drop of the hat if he thinks it benefits him and it's going to get him closer to what he wants, which is exoneration and dictatorial power. So we should keep that in mind as time goes forward. I would also add that President Biden did something very I think, clever, um, without diminishing the meaning of that term, in conditioning aid to Israel and all of our military aid beneficiaries on compliance with international law, and that includes protection and humanitarian assistance for civilians. This is the first time that Israel will be subject to such restrictions. And the president, not wanting to single Israel out, simply executed the order as it applies to all recipients. Now, does he have Israel specifically in mind? Of course he does. And of course he is losing patience with Bibi Netanyahu. Who would not? After all, he has been a completely intractable, belligerent force. He continues in a coalition with rapidly racist coalition partners. He has prioritized fighting to the last man on the Hamas side over a ceasefire that would release the hostages. So, of course, President Biden is frustrated with him, and he continues to press for more humanitarian aid. He continues to press not to go forward with military action on Rafah until uh, such plans are made for civilians. And so he's walking a line. He's walking a careful line. On one hand, Israel remains an ally, and the Israeli people are aligned with us. It's not like the Israeli people love Benjamin Netanyahu. On the contrary, he's got about 15% support. So when you see masses of Israelis out there protesting, they should know that America is with them. They stand with an Israel that is democratic, that is humane, and that has a genuine interest in peace. If you have to learn a new language on your bucket list, make 2024 the year you check it off your list with Babbel. Be better at what you do in 2024 with Babbel. It's the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. It's designed by real people for real conversation with tips and tools that are appropriate, accessible, and rooted in real-life situations. The teaching is conversation-based, so you'll be ready to start using what you've learned in the real world in no time. And believe me, it works. I am not great at languages, and even I have seen improvement in this, and it's fun. You can use it on your phone, and it's almost like a game. Babbel even has speech recognition technology that helps you improve your pronunciation and accent. Here's what it sounded like when I tried. Yo. Yo. Usted. Usted. Tu. Tu. Usted. 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 Tu eres Ana. Tu eres Ana. 
Yo soy el señor Paz. Yo soy el señor Paz. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babel is better. One study found that using Babel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. So here's a special limited-time deal for my listeners. Right now, get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only for my listeners at babbel.com slash greenroom. Remember, get 50% off at babbel.com slash greenroom, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash greenroom. Rules and restrictions may apply you can also start your language adventures with the link in our show notes. We have the perfect guest today because, as we sit here on Tuesday, the D.C. Circuit has just ruled that Donald Trump, in fact, is not immune from prosecution for crimes committed during his presidency. The opinion is clear. It's direct, it's easy to read, but it never hurts to have some expertise. And for all things legal, all things Trump, we're delighted to have Dennis Aftergut. Dennis, welcome to the program. It's an honor to be here, Jennifer. Dennis, you have written more than almost anyone on all things Except Trump. Except for you. Except for well, you, Jennifer. Yeah, well. Now, Dennis, I am sure in your long legal career, you never thought you'd be writing this much about one president, <laughs> Donald J. Trump. But Jennifer, I never thought I'd be writing this much. Yeah. You know, it's going to be um, there are going to be law school classes devoted to Donald Trump. There will be Ph.D. theses <laughs> devoted to Donald Trump. There'll be a, a textbook, Donald Trump by Dennis Aftergut and Lewis and Lawrence Tribe, whoever it will be. So yeah, we'll be you, you, may, you, you might just have the names reversed there, Jennifer. I'm not sure, but you might. Oh, that's very, very <laughs> gracious. Of you. All right. Let's start with. One of the many issues and proceedings, the Supreme Court um, is going to be hearing, as we sit here on Tuesday, later this week, um, a case involving whether he is disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. How do you think it should come out? And what do you think they're actually going to do? Great questions. There's no question how it should come out. All you have to do is read through the briefs, including the unbelievably fabulous amicus briefs. The law is absolutely clear. This measure was designed for both uh, secessionists looking retrospectively and looking prospectively for the Donald Trumps yet to come. There's just no question the language applies perfectly to him, and if they want to be true to their mandate to be judges, not, as Amy Coney Barrett said, political hacks, that's how the case will come out. I think the question for them, Jennifer, is really 
a question, a choice. Legitimacy or hypocrisy? Legitimacy or hypocrisy? Because all of the history and the plain text all point in one direction. Trump is disqualified. Do I think that's what they will do? Hope springs eternal, but I'll just digress for one quick second, Jennifer. I'm a big believer in the Stockdale paradox. Do you know the Stockdale paradox? No, tell us. So uh, Admiral James Stockdale was an inmate with uh, John McCain in the Hanoi Hilton. He attributes his survival to this paradox. Face the brutal facts. Keep the faith. He didn't know when he was getting out. And he knew his situation was dire. But he always believed he would be getting out. The brutal facts here are that we have a Supreme Court majority that I think is most likely to find a way to be hypocrites than to be legitimate. Um, so I, I am not counting on Trump's disqualification. What mechanism, what rationale do you think they're going to come up with to slip through this um, difficult decision um, that would force them to actually be judges? Um, there are several, but the two that I think are most likely, Jennifer, one is that uh, Congress needs to act before Section 3 can be executed. And the basis that they might do that, and it's, a, it, it's just a, an untenable legal claim, but the basis that they might do that is this. In 1871, Congress packed, uh, passed the Ku Klux Klan Act, and there was a civil provision that provided a means to disqualify someone in a civil lawsuit. In 1948, in a cleanup measure of things that I view as unnecessary, Congress rescinded that provision. I think they were just cleaning up and it was unnecessary. But the fact that Congress did it could be the linchpin on which they base their decision. That Congress hasn't acted, they need, it needs to act. And that could be in conjunction with the second basis. And this is what Justice Samour in the Colorado Supreme Court based his ruling on. And that is that due process for such a punishment as disqualification requires more procedure than Trump was granted in Colorado. Wrong, because disqualification is not a punishment. Qualification is a privilege. Wrong because he had a five day trial. Uh, they threw all the spaghetti they had against the wall. And 
they lost. They they didn't lose in the trial court. The judge used Judge Sarah Wallace used another off ramp that is totally preposterous and made herself look pretty silly, I thought. She said, it doesn't apply to presidents. I don't want to get into that. It, it, it defies history because the subject was debated and they, uh, the proponent said, yes, it does. And because it's totally ludicrous that you would disqualify everybody but the most powerful person. Um, so I think she was looking for an off-ramp not to be a sole judge doing it. And the Colorado Supreme Court reversed her on that properly, four to three. I would hasten to add, let's see if student law student Jennifer gets this right, Professor Dennis, that the argument that it is not self-executing is utterly flawed. I can think of at least two reasons. One, we know that the other sections of the 14th Amendment, including the due process and the equal protection, are self-executing. People bring actions under that measure directly all the time. It doesn't mean uh, Congress must act. And secondly, during the Civil War and for all those years up to 1871, there was no legislation. So rather than prove that repealing the 1871 statute, the real answer is up until then, we had a 14th Amendment Section 3, and it was perfectly fine, and it was being used for its purpose. What do I get as a grade, Professor? Um, you you get an A, and um, to get an A+, plus, you might have added that uh, 15 or 16,000 Confederates took advantage of um, requests to qualify themselves to run for office when no legislation existed at all. You could add that, um, I think it was in 1978, in a reconciliation measure, the United States Congress adopted a resolution that essentially pardoned, gave amnesty to one Jefferson Davis. And Jefferson Davis had been, I think, by President Johnson, the successor to President Lincoln, absolved of all his other disqualifications had been given back his citizenship. But the only thing that was left was to grant him the right to run for office. Of course, he's long since dead. This is all posthumous. But why did Con what did that mean? It meant that Congress thought that the measure that otherwise he was disqualified without any uh, legislation from Congress. But that's that's getting pretty far into the weeds. And we'll put aside why in 1978 the Congress felt it was necessary to allow the traitor who set off or who led the Civil War to run for office again. We'll, we'll put that to the side for a moment. Um, let's turn to another Trump uh, issue, which, as we sit here on Tuesday, is fresh off the presses, as I said. Uh, and that is the ruling, uh, the unanimous ruling, the procurium ruling of the D.C. Circuit, that he is not immune from prosecution for crimes committed during his presidency. 
first, explain to the audience what procurium is and <laughs> if that makes any difference between a procurium opinion or one written by a judge for the three-judge panel. Yes, this decision was procurium. It means it procurium means it wasn't signed by any one of the three judges as the author. And one can make several observations about procurium opinions. Often, most often, they're done when the issue is kind of open and shut. And this is an open and shut issue, although they did take um, a lot of pages to quite brilliantly uh, toss aside uh, Trump's claims to immunity. Uh, and sometimes it's done when there are threats against judges like there are now. And, you know, nobody wants to necessarily be identified as the majority judge. I, I don't think that um, they are operating that way, but it is possible. But if I could just take a minute, I just want to read. Can I just read to you? Yes, please. Some of, some of the language is just so powerful. Yes. So they say, quote, for the purpose of this criminal case. Former President Trump has become Citizen Trump. <laughs> and then they add, quite beautifully, with all of the defenses of any other criminal defenses, yeah, right. but, but not neither Here's above the law or above below the law. Um, for any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president, no longer protects him against this prosecution. And, and if I may, they also toss right back at Trump's impeachment lawyers what they said during Trump's second impeachment after he had encouraged, at minimum, the insurrection. They say, Trump's 2021 impeachment proceedings for incitement of insurrection at, at those proceedings, his counsel argued that instead of post-presidency impeachment, the appropriate vehicle for, quote, investigation, prosecution, and punishment, unquote, is, quote, the Article Three courts as, quote, we have a judicial process and an investigative process to which, ta-da, no former office holder is immune. That's what they told Congress have it one way with Congress, have it the other way with courts. How Trumpian can you get? And by the way, it's nice that they slipped in there that the presidency is an office because that's one of the dodges which he may be trying in the case we just spoke about, the 14th Amendment, claiming that somehow the presidency is not an office, which is the, the, the Constitution as the Colorado Supreme Court refers to the presidency as an office about 25 times. So let's take a little bit of a deep dive into the D.C. Circuit. Um, by the way, it might have been also that no one judge wrote it because it was really a joint effort. And perhaps they took so long because they were really trying to make it unanimous and everybody yes. kind of had a hand in it. And yes. that's how it came out. Well said. Um, well said. Although it, it reads very consistently 
consistently. It doesn't read like a cut and paste job. Um, right. With Jennifer, the, can, do you mind if I just jump back real quickly? Yes. To the uh, disqualification case, because yes. I think it's important that people understand that a constitution is, in fact, filled with countermeasures against those who would destroy it. It's what Timothy Snyder, the brilliant Yale historian, says when he says constitutions have self-defense mechanisms. It's true of our constitution. It's true of the German constitution after uh, the Third Reich. And what Snyder says so correctly is that those self-defense measures always succeed except when their guardians, the courts, do not apply their plain language. You can look back at dozens of constitutional measures and you can find the history that they were designed to protect against. And this is the one that the framers originally did not think of, but that the framers of the 14th Amendment had so clearly in mind when they drafted it. Well put, well put. All right, so DC Circuit. There's a very long stretch um, for those legal wonks out there um, that delves into a case, Midland Asphalt, which we've all read and heard and written more about than we thought was absolutely possible, um, which concerns whether the case was even properly there. And there was some dispute, some dispute in the circuit as to whether you can take up claim like this before there is a final judgment. The usual rule is you got to wait until the trial's over and then you take your appeals and you go on. And the court, um, to my absolute delight, <laughs> said, all you people who have been worrying about Midland Asphalt, forget it. It doesn't apply. Um, what do you think they did? And why do you think um, they wanted, in essence, to get to the merits? They didn't want to shove it off on, I hate to use the word, but a technicality um, and kind of escape the case on the merits. They're thinking about the Supreme Court. Interesting. Yeah. They, they don't want the case sent back to them because they didn't rule on the merits. Now, Jennifer, they could have done both things together. That, yes. they, that, that was also possible. But they wanted to be sure that they ruled on the merits. And Jennifer, Judge Chutkin, in, in a kind of parallel way, but um, not advantageously to my mind. I, I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but she ruled that 
a president simply cannot engage in crime. And she did not closely analyze whether or not he was immune if the Supreme Court decided to extend the civil rule that he's immune to extend to the criminal context, that he he's immune um, if he was acting within the scope of his duties, which he absolutely was not. Um, But my fear, Jennifer, was because um, the Reagan appointed judge on the three judge panel, Judge Henderson, Karen Henderson, had raised this question whether the case should be sent back to her to decide that issue. And I was concerned that she might say that, which she didn't, uh, which is great. Um, But I think this is a way of covering their bases because this case needs to be decided. And, uh, you know, I want to I want to follow your questions, but I've given some thought to what happens next and what's the timetable. And does this case get decided finally um, so that it goes back to Judge Shutkin for a trial before the election? And let me put a pin in that, Dennis. And let's. Pin in that. Good. And we we will get there, I promise. Um, on the merits, as you said, um, this court held that the Fitzgerald opinion, which is the civil immunity of a president, which holds that you can't be sued um, for things that are within the outer perimeter, in other words, giving some latitude to the presidency, that that whole kind of structure, doesn't apply to a criminal case. Um, Explain what their reasoning was and why you think it's right. There's just a huge difference between civil proceedings, which take a president's time, and especially while he's president, um, they take his time and they distract him. And the consequences of his liability are monetary. And a criminal case where, I've coined this phrase, you've probably never heard it before, but no one is above the law. You know, I've trademarked that. And no one can be above, you cannot have, you just can't have a president committing crimes. Uh, Jennifer, I don't know. Uh, see, I'm old enough to remember when Ken Starr uh, was the special independent prosecutor at that time right. um, and was prosecuting Trump. I'm sorry, uh, Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton uh, finally got him after seven years uh, because Clinton lied, committed perjury. I, I don't know. It, it could be my failing memory because I am old, Jennifer, but. Do you remember anybody talking at that time about a president being immune from right. criminal prosecution? No. Um, and those are all Republicans, uh, Ken Starr and so forth. Uh, and it's just nonsense because, of course, if Trump's theory applied to Joe Biden, he could, uh, you know, uh, end the limit, the two-term limit on presidents like Trump plans to do, he could 
call out the National Guard and arrest Trump. I mean, um, it's just nonsense. And I'm so old, I remember that Richard Nixon accepted a pardon for crimes if he couldn't be prosecuted for crimes. And that was directing one government agency to prevent another government agency from investigating him. If he was immune, why did he need a pardon? Why did Gerald Ford essentially put at risk his presidency, lost the second uh, term, um, for that? And why did he accept it if he was immune? That is so delicious. You know, it's uh, it. this doesn't seem like such a hard one. It really doesn't. Now, the court did also um, consider what whether there would be immunity, if not absolutely for everything, as applied to this case. And the court spoke about what it is that he is accused of doing and why it's particularly absurd that he should ask for immunity from that. Talk to us a little bit about that part of the Well, <laughs> um, uh, I mean, the, main, the, the general concept is that um, he actually, <laughs> you know, he's not in his presidential capacity when he's running for re-election. That's kind of the general concept. So, but assume assume that he's wearing his presidential hat. Okay, let's see. Is it within the outer parameters of a president's duty? Uh, let's see, to lead a campaign, his campaign, in drumming up fake electors. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, is it within his capacity, uh, his capacity as president to call, oh, let's say, the secretary of state of one of the battleground states, let's just say Georgia, let's just say uh, Raffensperger, and tell him, find me 11,780 votes, one more than would be needed to overcome President Joe Biden's victory in that state. Um, is it within a, the scope of a president's duty to have a rally in which you say, we fight like hell, the rules don't apply to us, we're marching up to the Capitol, essentially to, to block the constitutional process of a peaceful transition of power. On this, Jennifer, I refer your listeners to the historians and particularly the historians of democracy who say that in the 20th and 21st century, democracy doesn't die at the hands of generals but of elected officials who do not honor the peaceful transition of power. That is the centerpiece of a constitutional republic. That is what Trump sought to destroy. That is not within the, the outer perimeters of a president's, president's duties. And if you had to boil it down, 
the, the circuit court, and we're just about to get to the Supreme Court, essentially is standing on the steps of the courthouse in D.C. screaming, are you effing kidding me? Of course he's not immune from prosecution. If he is, then we don't have a constitutional system. That's if, kind of the headline. I, I, I think so. If you say, if a court says, like many pundits have said, and and some of them, I think including your colleague E.J. Dion recently, there, uh, he 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 he's stunningly good and stunningly honest in backtracking from an earlier view. If a court says that, well, shouldn't this be decided by the voters? You have just written Section Three out of the Constitution. It is a countermeasure against the demagogue who seeks to become a tyrant, as Alexander Hamilton wrote in Federalist Number One. Number One. Uh, this is a countermeasure against a demagogue who has enough followers that they could destroy the Constitution, which is the situation we are facing. It's the situation where the Supreme Court has to make its decision about legitimacy or hypocrisy. And let's go right there. What the circuit court uh, gave him a short timeline to take this up with the Supreme Court. What do you think the court is going to do and what should they do? Well, um, I think uh, the timeline is, I think that Trump, uh, first of all, let me back up. The D.C. Circuit made a very smart move. It's a little bit, it's going to be a little bit under the headlines, I think. And what they said was, we are not going to issue the mandate. That's a fancy way of saying we're not going to lift the stay on Judge Chutkin for seven days. You have seven days to go to the Supreme Court. If you file a petition in the Supreme Court for certiorari, we will keep the stay. Otherwise, we're going to lift it in seven days. That is so smart. It incentivizes Trump to file quickly a petition, which he otherwise has 90 days to do and more, uh, because there's a middle step. He can file a petition for review in the all-bond course. That is the full D.C. Circuit. This is a decision by three judges, um, two appointed by Democrats, one appointed by Republican, as we've said, Judge Karen Henderson, a very, very nice lineup of bipartisan appointees. Um, I, my own view is I put myself in Trump's shoes. I may not take that invitation. I may try something quickly, and that is, I go to the en banc court. I file a quick petition. En banc court, please stay this while I 
take my time and seek your review of this very important decision. I think the Albon court might very well grant that and give him perhaps two weeks. I, I don't know. I'm just guessing. Ten days, two weeks, maybe just seven days. File your petition with us. Um, if you file your petition with us, we'll stay it for another week uh, uh, or ten days uh, while we consider it. There is no way, Jennifer, that the en banc court, with this ruling, particularly because it also comes from Judge Henderson, there is just no way that they will not uh, deny that petition and do it quickly. They all know what's at stake. They have a pretty uh, well-paved road to moving very fast on these Trump petitions because they understand exactly what's going on, which is to try to delay the trial. I can think of only one judge in that circuit who might go for this. Let's see if we think the same thing. What is the one judge that's so bad that is such a hack for Trump that might actually want to take this up? I'm I'm just going to take the wildest of guesses. Uh, you know, you're going to correct me. I know. Amy Rao. Yes. Ding, 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 ding. Okay. Yes. So one she's vote. The the- Eileen, she's the Eileen Cannon of the, yeah. of the GC circuit. But aside from her, um, I don't see anybody. on. The, I don't see George Katzis, who's a uh, conservative uh, judge going for this. I don't see anyone else going for this. Yeah. I think that circuit, with the exception perhaps of the one judge, has made a decision. We are going to get this thing to trial. Because we understand the American people should know if they're voting for a felon or not. Uh, Jennifer, your head counting would give Nancy Pelosi a run for her money. (laughs) Um, I do want to say, Jennifer, and I, I can come back to how what I'm thinking is likely to happen and whether we're going to have that trial. But I want to say before that, I think it's very important for your audience to know that we have a very good backstop, and that's Alvin Bragg's indictment that is quietly just moving along of Trump related to Trump's first election interference his hush money payment to Stormy Daniels. And I'm going to put a pin in that, and we are going to get to that. So let's then go back to our scenario. So this three-judge panel has, in in essence, given him a week to go up to the Supremes. He may bypass that by going to the en banc and saying, no, 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 give me more time. I want to go to you guys first. They can grant that, not grant that. Let's assume that within, at most, a month, the 
en banc court has disposed however they do, either denying the stay, denying the appeal. Um, and Trump then has one final stop at the Supreme Court. What does he do? What do they do? And what should they do? Great, great questions. Um, the danger, and uh, they are a lot smarter than I am, and they know this very well, and they also see what their panel did. They will deny the motion. I think it's three weeks, not a month, but they will deny the motion, and they will do the exact same thing. You have seven days to file in the Supreme Court. If they don't do that, he has 90 days. That's the danger. Yep. Yep. They, they have, that's the danger. Um, count on it not coming to pass. So he files his mo- his uh, petition in the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, Jack Smith files his own petition, um, perhaps. Or, but he certainly filed. I, I think it's likely he files something. And it's all about what you say. The American people have a right to know. Although Jack Smith's been careful simply to frame it as the rule of law. This is... The country has a right to know he he never touches the election, at least not so far. But he doesn't have to. Everybody knows what is going on. Okay, so now we're a month or five weeks out. We're in early February. So now we're start to be in uh, March or middle March. The Supreme Court with Jack Smith's earlier petition for certiorari, trying to get them to move quickly, they decided to wait for the D.C. Circuit. Okay, that's fine. Uh, Jack Smith filed something, and they, as they did before, they ruled very quickly. I don't remember exactly, but it seems to me it was within two or three weeks. Yes. And... If they do that, you're now in early April. Jennifer, I, um, let's just say, I'm weighing in heavily on the keep the faith side of the Stockdale paradox. I think, because I think it's likely that they are going to keep Trump on the ballot. Chief Justice Roberts will have a strong interest, and I think that uh, Amy Coney Barrett or Judge uh, Justice Kavanaugh may share that interest, creating a five-vote majority for denying certiorari. That will show the court, see, we're balanced, we're legitimate, And if they do that in early April, we have a late May, early June trial in D.C. Um, If they grant certiorari, and we have to say that's, you know, that's not highly unlikely. I think it's less likely than, um, than denying certiorari, but it's a novel case. It's a it's a uh, first time ruling on the issue of whether Fitzgerald, the case you cited, 
extends to the, to the criminal context. It seems obvious, but they could take it. The way I've counted it, Jennifer, we might be looking at a September 1 trial if they move as quickly as they did in United States versus Nixon, three months. Uh, I think we could be on the very edge of the 60-day informal rule of the Justice Department not to do something too close to an election. This could be an exceptional case. Who knows? But we could have that. I think that may bring us back, given our time, uh, to to uh, Alvin Bragg. So let me just zero in on the decision to grant cert or not grant cert. On one hand, you have the Supreme Court, which, as you say, has a novel issue because we have a novel former president who is on trial for crimes he committed. That's why it's novel. That they may want to have their two cents. On the other hand, you have the Supreme Court that knows its legitimacy is running, running, running thin. And they're going to make, in all likelihood, a favorable ruling to keep them on the ballot in the 14th Amendment, uh, in the 14th Amendment case. And so they might simply, and again, a per curiam opinion, or perhaps they will have a couple dissents from the usual characters, say, we think the D.C. Circuit had it exactly right. We don't need to take that up. As to those two, what do you think the percentages are? Take the case because we have to have our two cents or let's get out of Dodge and deny cert. Well, anyone is way out on a very thin limb predicting what they will do, especially in a case like this. If you want to ask me what Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito will do, then I would feel like uh, the limb's very sturdy. But what five judges, hopefully six, would do, you know, I I, I would say 60-40 to two to one, that they will deny certiorari. This is a very well-reasoned decision. I think they have legitimacy, as you say, on their mind. And the outcome is absolutely clear. So do they need to take a novel case when the lower court has come out right? I, my optimistic side is reading their earlier decision to give it to the D.C. Circuit, let them run with it first, as saying we're not going to need to decide this if they decide it the right way. That could be wrong, but that's that's my opinion. And speaking of possible dissents, as both you and I just did. Uh, I just did because uh, Alito and Clarence Thomas would dissent publicly from a denial of certiorari. Uh, And by the way, Clarence Thomas should Should not be taking this case because (laughs) he should be recused. He should be recused. His wife was part of the insurrection. Come on, people. That's how bad the Supreme Court has gotten, that the guy whose wife was involved is going to dissent and insist that he take the case and then rule on it. 
Yeah. That's how um, stupid we are. That, the well, that's January, the stupid line we're in. The House January 6th committee on her participation in the insurrection had the receipts. Her emails with Mark Meadows trying to convince Trump to uh, o- overturn the election. Her emails to Arizona's legislature trying to convince them they have the receipts. It is beyond unethical. And this, again, tells us something about the Supreme Court and its new ethical guidelines, Jennifer, because they say that where any unbiased objective observer would say you should recuse, you should recuse. But they have no teeth. And it's very clear he's not going to follow those guidelines. Right, and And they are violating the fundamental rule of law, which is you may not be a judge in your own case, but they're going to decide their own <laughs> conflicts of interest because they're an exception to every right. rule. They're and game. also, the, the the second principle is uh, you can't be the judge in your spouse's own case. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the, that's the second principle. <laughs> right. right. Um, these are not, by the way, these are not hard cases. We're not talking about whether you know, a hundred dollars worth of stock is enough to make give you the appearance of buy. This is easy stuff. So you're right, yes. and that, that now we come to the uh, corollary of uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes' dictum, and um, and and the decision we just have from the D.C. Circuit proves it. The obverse corollary of what he said is: easy cases make good law. And we've just seen that in action. Exactly. Now, I'll say one more thing about the timing, and then we want to get to Brad, because I think this is um, the most underestimated case, perhaps, of all of them out there. If, in fact, we are looking at a start date in September, as you indicated, there's a rule about initiating, that is, indicting someone within 60 days, which is kind of a rule of the Justice Department, does not apply on its face to decisions to proceed to trial in a long kind of appeal. Um, But there may be something a little itsy about, that's a legal term, by the way, about starting a trial a month before, you know, or a month and a half before an election. And that may give them second and third and fourth pause. I will say this. We are in this fix, not because of the D.C. Circuit, not because of the Supreme Court, not because of Judge Chatkin, but because Merrick Garland took his own sweet time deciding that maybe this was a case in which he really should be investigating the guy who publicly incited the insurrection rather than starting with all the foot soldiers and taking years and years to get up the chain. Just my kind of view. Well, uh, Jennifer, uh, before I say what I'm going to say, I have to give you full disclosure. Merrick Garland was my law school classmate. Um, And I do have a T-shirt that says, oops, I forgot to become attorney general. (laughs) But Jennifer, I have held that opinion. I have also seen it written by the great, Marcy Wheeler, 
I'll brag again, a graduate of my undergraduate alma mater, um, saying, I think it was Marcy. You know, it may have been the FBI. Now, the buck stops, the buck stops on the attorney general's desk. I love the FBI. We do have some indicators of issues there, as in all of our institutions, including the sentencing, the indictment and sentencing of McGonagall, the FBI agent in charge in New York, who's the one that uh, James Comey feared was going to spill beans, and therefore I'm getting too far into the weeds. But um, but he was undermining what was going on in 2016. And we also have indicators of something very bizarre going on when they didn't do that full search. In Mar-a-Lago. Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. So, but there are lots of things we don't know. So all I'm saying is um, Merrick Garland may have some off-ramp But the buck stops on the attorney general's desk, and I'm inclined to agree with you. Fair enough. Um, So um, where were we? Alvin Bragg. Alvin Alvin Bragg Bragg. is a Manhattan DA who has brought a 34-count indictment on a very discreet set of facts, which, as you alluded to, is not only about paying hush money to a one Stormy Daniels, which is kind of the salacious, but is about pulling the wool over the eyes of the voters. Gosh, isn't that a pattern? Tell us why that case is important and why that may be the silver bullet that saves many of us um, from having a complete meltdown um, before the election and may, in fact, result in a conviction for one Donald J. Trump. Uh, I'm in a crib from Larry Tribe. In terms of pulling the wool over voters' eyes and election interference about Trump, he said, uh, and about what he did before and what he did at the end, garbage in, garbage out. Uh, I thought that was a great line. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and mine is, uh, again, because I'm very good at cribbing, the cover-up here, you know, is kind of worse than the crime, uh, uh, or at least equal to it. So the interesting thing is that Trump had been approached by Stormy Daniels, no no perfect angel here by any means, to pay her off for months. It was only when the Access Hollywood tape broke that within two days, they made a deal that they had been putting off for months. Why? Because they understood that a one-two punch could very well be a knockout. And we have to put ourselves back in the mindset of October 2016. We were not inured, most of us, to Trump's salacious and um, 
immoral ways. And they understood that. That's why they rushed to pay her off, to keep this information from coming as a one-two punch to the American people, which could end his bid for the presidency. If you don't think that that was important, you have to understand, if he were not elected, we would not be where we are right now. Forget about Merrick Garland. We wouldn't have had 30,000 lies. We wouldn't have um, all of the guardrails eroded, mixing metaphors there slightly, but we, we would just not, our country would not be in this mess. Hillary Clinton would have been elected and our republic, our constitutional republic would not be in the dire straits that it is. This is a very important case. And Alvin Bragg's prosecutors know that and they know how to argue it. Um, I want to say one very important thing that, again, might be a little below the, the radar. At least it's a little bit in the weeds. But why hasn't Trump sought to delay that case, claiming that he is immune? And there's a footnote in today's opinion saying they're not saying anything about state court prosecutions. I'm going to tell you why, Jennifer, and because you went to law school, uh, you you'll understand this, and I'll try to do it in a way that a layperson could understand. There is a rule that if you have taken one bite at a legal apple and lost and suffered a final judgment, you don't get another one. And it could be in a different context. Trump's lawyers screwed up. They sought to remove his state court prosecution, the Alvin Bragg prosecution, to federal court because they're looking for every delay they can possibly have. They lost Judge Alvin Hellerstein, a federal district court in the Southern District of New York, said, sorry, you weren't acting within the scope of your presidential duties. That's the basis the argument was, I was arguing within the scope of my presidential duties. There's a federal question here. Uh, you should take this case out of uh, Judge Juan Marchand in the state court's hands. They lost. They appealed. Then they must have realized, oh, my God, what have we done? This is the same issue on immunity. Let's back off. They did. Well, they got a final judgment now, and they can't. Under the law, they may try, but they can't, under the law, now make the claim to immunity as to this case. Aren't we lucky? So, by the way, this is what happens when you get lawyers from, you know, the back of bus stop benches um, or wherever these people come from. Not the best right. lawyers. They're I, not I the Dennis's and they're not the <laughs> tribes of well, the world. Well, I don't know about that. And he has some, he's had some good lawyers. He, he has. He has a good lawyer, uh, you know, uh, arguing his uh, Supreme Court case of disqualification. Yes, he does. Uh, so, um, uh, but you're right, the quality has been very uneven. And these are intricacies that you better be really, really on it, as you know, 
in practicing law, there are a thousand uh, traps for the unwary, and they fell into one. And the the mistake Trump made or the basis for which now he is facing is that he mischaracterized those payments as payments for legal fees. And of course, there was no legal fees involved. This was a payoff. And by misrepresenting these in legal documents, he arguably committed not only a misdemeanor, but a felony under right. law. That's where the cover-up was. He did that to cover up. That's his go-to. That's his fatal flaw. Again, not smart, but he fell into a trap. And um, the cover-up, uh, mischaracterizing business records in New York is worse than, well, if not the crime, it's worse than the scandal. And so it is a crime to cover up that way. It's a crime that Alvin Bragg has prosecuted many in that office many times. They're good at it and they will win. And a conviction matters. We know it matters. It's been tested in polls. Uh, There's a recent poll that 57% of the American people would not vote for him. That's kind of a landslide in this environment uh, if he's convicted. Uh, And so, uh, and that's only one of many. A conviction matters. And there's inside poll testing, Jennifer, that this case, excuse me, a conviction in this case matters, uh, if not equally, a great deal to a conviction in the January 6th case. And we can close our discussion by observing that thanks to E. Jean Carroll, we have a very good sense of what Donald Trump is like inside a courtroom. And we have a very good sense of what New York jurors are like. And Donald Trump should be very, very afraid because he cannot control himself. And when he cannot control himself, jurors look at him and say, this is a bad guy. Uh, I'm going to say, absolutely. We have a good idea that New York jurors are fair jurors, like almost every juror, like the jurors in D.C. They're going to apply the standard of liability, as they did in Eugene Carroll's case, they're going to apply the standard of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt in D.C. When that case comes to trial, we ha- we are lucky in this country to have the institution of jurors that will, uh, again, I'll coin a phrase, protect citizen Trump like every other citizen, <laughs> no more and no less. And can I say one other quick thing, if I may, of course. about... Um, about the disqualification case. I am hoping against the expressed opinion of one of your other colleagues whom I revere, Ruth Marcus, that if they come out, the majority comes out the wrong way, there will be dissents. Dissents are very, very important for history here. Um, And it doesn't do the country one bit of good for there to be a unanimous decision. Not one bit of good, in my opinion. We need to hear what the opposing, I think, far more righteous legally point of view is. And I'm, 
I'm hoping that happens if uh, the court does the hypocritical thing and doesn't pay attention to history or to text. Absolutely. And we have to remember that these justices will not be there for forever. And the Supreme Court historically has a very nice habit of going back to cases wrongly discovered, wrongly decided, and plucking up the dissents and saying, you know, these guys were right. And that is exactly um, kind of the passage of time and the beauty of our court system is those dissents live on. And we should, frankly, have revealed one more time what, to quote a phrase, partisan hacks now make up the majority on the Supreme Court. I took four years. I took four years of French in high school, so I understand your French. And uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. Dennis, this has been so much fun. I really enjoyed it. We're going to have you back and hopefully we'll have you back to analyze the conviction of Donald J. Trump in multiple criminal cases and the preservation of our democracy. From my lips, you know. And just disqualification. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Dennis, thank you so much. I'm honored to be on this with you, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Fun for me, too. Bye-bye. And that was Dennis Aftercut. Wow. I think we got a very good taste of the legal challenges ahead of Donald Trump and maybe some optimism that the rule of law does operate. Now, we're in a bit of a time crunch because Merrick Garland took his sweet time getting around to going after Donald Trump. But be that as it may, the courts have really acted for courts with relative speed. Justice doesn't turn quickly, doesn't turn fast, but as they say, it grinds fine, meaning it reaches the correct end eventually. So we have much to be pleased about. We will sit and watch what the Supreme Court has to do with these various issues. But Donald Trump is finally finding accountability. If you enjoyed this program and you enjoy our other programs, please like, follow, and subscribe to Jen Rubin's Green Room. Bye-bye.